folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is episode 28 of the Jesus Society Podcast. Um, today is uh, September 1st. September 1st. September 1st, I always figure when you get to September, you may still have, at least here in Middle Tennessee, if you if you get to September, you you may have a little bit of warm weather left but um summer is uh, is uh, gasping and dying and uh and the gloriousness that is fall is about to be upon us so i am uh, fall is my favorite time of year i'm always looking forward to fall um the the weather gets cooler which i love the leaves start changing which i love uh, i get to go hunting which i love um so all the all the best things happen in fall so we are uh, we are uh, getting closer every day, and September always makes me think we may actually make it. <laughs> but it's not um, it's not as bad here as uh, as it has been in Texas. I've got a lot of friends that still live in Texas, and um, August has been a brutal, brutal month as it often is. Um, most days in most places over a hundred degrees, or pretty darn close to it, which makes me glad I live in Middle Tennessee. It's humid here, but um, at least there's shade. <laughs> shade is a wonderful thing. So um, I am. Uh, I continue. I am. I, I. I told you last week that I. Uh, I had uh, COVID, and I uh, am proud to say that I am. Uh, I am as close to 100% recovered from COVID as I think I am likely ever to get. Um, you know, I. I don't operate on all eight cylinders, even when in the best times these days. So. Um, I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, my son who had it is uh, doing fine. I think today, today or tomorrow, I can't remember is the uh, last day that he supposedly is contagious. So he is about to uh, resume life again, which is a good thing. So, um, we're all doing fine. My wife uh, continues to remain unscathed by uh, COVID. So we're, we're hopeful that she, uh, is either, has either had such a mild case of it already that we didn't notice or that somehow she's immune to it. So anyway, we're doing okay here in Middle Tennessee. So today I want to kind of continue our conversation from last week about uh, freedom and another part of freedom that's important, and that is the idea of identity. And this ties in closely um, with last week's uh, episode. Um, we said at the at the end of things last week, you know, you really have two choices in life. You can you can see yourself as a son or daughter of God, or you can see yourself as an orphan. And it matters greatly how you see yourself because here's the thing: if the enemy or the world can convince us that we're something other than what God says we are, we're never going to make it this life. And Satan will try and attack us either by, by casting doubt on the nature of God, and we talked about that last week, or by dismantling our sense of our own identity. And sometimes we, you know, we, we know things in our head, um, but that hasn't always translated to the heart. You know, I, I, I say all the time, most Christians, if you say, does God love you? They're going to say, yeah, because intellectually they know, they've read it in the Bible, Yes, God loves us, right? But do you feel like God loves you? 
That's a little bit different question. And I run into a lot of people that aren't, aren't totally bought into the idea that God loves them. God loves mankind, but we oftentimes don't feel like God really loves us. Some of that's because we think we're so miser- such miserable failures. So who are you, really? Who has God created you to be? Who has God said you are? What do you believe about yourself? Those are really, really important questions to get sorted out and settled on. Because it is, it is impossible for us to act consistently in a way that is different from the way we think. And I'm going to talk about all this today. But at some point, um, when we can arrange it, um, I've, I've got a good friend um, who I'm going to have on here to talk more about identity because he has done um, more work on identity than almost anyone I know. Um, he, is a, he is a dear friend of mine. He is a shepherd uh, at a, a, a large church in Abilene, Texas, and has been a key part of their men's uh, ministry for, um, uh, for years. But he's not here today. Um, he's probably mowing his grass while we're, while we're watching this. I've mentioned him before. Eddie is his name. And uh, Eddie, you're, I've given everyone notice you have to be on my podcast sometime. But today, since Eddie's not here, you will have to settle for me. So uh, good luck with that. <laughs> So I want to start this this, um, conversation about identity by saying how incredibly important it is not just to to read things about identity or even to listen to this podcast, but to to sort all this out in dialogue and in relationship with God himself, okay? Uh, I mean, you can listen to me talk, and hopefully I'm going to say some good things. You can read some scriptures, and those are fine places to start, scriptures more so than me. Um, but if you try to do this without a real engagement with God, this is going to be much harder and much less effective. Because here's the thing, fathers give identity to their sons. That is just the way it works. So let God give you your identity. Uh, that's true with daughters too. I, I want to be always careful to try to um, make sure everybody understands um, I'm talking about men and women, okay? Um, Let God give you your identity. And that requires listening, and it requires a degree of trust. So I want to kind of start this by telling you a a piece of my story as it relates to my identity. And um, this wasn't the the, the total piecing together of my identity, but it was the start of it, and it was powerful, and it was absolutely transformative for me. Um, so I want to I want to kind of share this piece of, of this with with you because because I think maybe it'll be helpful. I hope it'll be helpful. So in 2008, uh, we had just moved to Abilene, Texas, um, and and you've heard me talk about this a little bit before. Um, we moved to Abilene, Texas after several very very difficult years uh, of ministry, and I was I was burnt out. Uh, I was spent. I felt like a complete and utter, utter hack uh, in ministry. I was a ministry failure, um, at least the way I saw myself then. 
and I was pretty broken about all of it. Um, I and I told God after we moved to Abilene um, and and could kind of start to process some of the last previous couple of years. I told God essentially what Moses told God uh, back in the Old Testament. Um, what I said was, I don't want to do this anymore without you. If you don't lead me, if you don't get in this with me in a way that I can see and feel and taste and go with me from here on out, I don't want to go. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore on my own. And I'd been having this conversation with God almost every day for about a month in the fall of 2008 after we'd gotten sort of settled in Abilene. So on Tuesday, September 16th, 2008, and I know this because I, I have a journal and I, I dug this journal out and, and um, read through all this stuff um, from back then just the other day uh, as I was kind of putting this this podcast together. Um, on So on Tuesday, September 16th, I was in a, a group discussion as, as part of a, I was in a, a graduate missional internship uh, at the time. Um, and um, I was in a group discussion on this Tuesday um, and we were discussing uh, Neil Cole's book, Cultivating a Life for God. Now, I love that book. I recommend that book. I think it is a wonderful book. If you want something um, really straightforward and simple and um, just to, to kind of help you grow closer to God and closer to others, it's not the only answer, but it's a decent one. It's a, it's a pretty decent answer. Um, for me, it was such a breath of spring because it was so, it, it, it was the first thing I think that showed me a way to do ministry that was so different than the way I'd been doing it and probably more effective, and, and addressed some of the ways I felt completely unproductive and ineffective. Ineffective. Ineffective, yes, that's the word. Um, and I, I, to this day, I'll say, if you find two or three people and you, and you read that book and you, you kind of, you don't read the book as, a, as a, a group study, just read the book and get two or three people and do what it says in the book, you will grow closer to God and you'll grow closer to one another. Anyway, we were discussing that book. We had to read it, and that this was going to be our, our kind of processing together in, the, in this little group of that book that day. And as we started um, to, to talk about it, um, the, the professor said, let's just go around the room, and everybody kind of give their, their take on it. So they started with this person over here. I don't remember who it was. And we started. they started to go around the room, and everybody kind of gave their little, little take on the book. And what was interesting is as they as we started to go around around the room, almost everyone in the room said some version of, "I didn't really like the book. It wasn't a very good book. I I thought his, you know, his ideas were not very well thought out, or, or whatever. And here's why. And they would they would kind of go on and on about why they didn't like it. And one person did this, and then another, and then another, and another, and and it started to. I started to get a little anxious about it because I love the book. Well, by the time that the discussion got around to me, I was feeling very intimidated by my peers. Now, you need to know I was already intimidated in that group because other than the professor, I was the oldest guy in the room by a lot. 
I felt so different from these young students that I was around and so, so inadequate. Um, part of my brokenness, right? So when it got to be my turn to tell everyone what I thought of the book, I waffled. I let groupthink influence what I said about the book. And basically I said that I thought there were some decent things about the book, but you know, it really wasn't all that great. And then right after me, the professor was sitting right next to me, and so it was his turn, and he gave his take. And guess what he said about the book? He loved it. He just glowed with praise for the book in exactly the same way that I would have if I had not been so intimidated by everyone else's opinion. And after him, two other people um, in, the, in the group praised the book as well. I was utterly ashamed of myself. Utterly ashamed. I knew what I believed, but I didn't have the guts to say it because I, I felt so intimidated by everybody around there. You, you, ever, you ever felt that way? Well, I, I was just, I wallowed in that shame for the whole rest of the day. I was beating myself up, belittling myself for not being stronger, for not being honest, I had let the other people in that group make me think I was naive, simple-minded, and not thoughtful enough about things. I had let them believe, make me believe I was wrong. And I was still wallowing in my shame and self-loathing the next morning when I had my quiet time with God. And so when I got into this little quiet space, I, I just sort of vomited all that angst and self-loathing and shame right out there before the Lord. And I was journaling, as I said, all this at the time. So I've, I've got all that. And I've, I've got this journal right here in front of me now. And I'm looking at all that vomitatiousness. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I like it. So, And there it is in my journal, just staring out at me. Well, when I got all that out of my system and I, and I had laid it all out before the Lord... I just sat there in the quiet, totally disgusted with myself. And I wasn't really expecting anything. I just knew I needed to get that out. And so I sat there in the quiet, sitting in my own stew, as it were. And then, out of the blue, a thought popped into my head that I just knew didn't come from me. I had the sense it was God speaking to me, and it was the first time in my life that I was aware that God might actually be speaking to me. And here's what I heard, word for word. This is what this is what came out, and this is what I wrote in my journal. Trust yourself. I have given you good instincts and a good mind. Don't let others intimidate you into doubting your instincts. And I read those words now, and I'm, I, I can't hardly do it without bawling. That was Wednesday, September 17th, 2008. And it is one of the most important days of my life. And as I sat there just 
just thinking about that and and sort of having the weight of those words sit on my soul. I got the sense that I should read Psalm 139. And so I did. And the Lord and I together read Psalm 139 together for five days. And we talked about that psalm together. And in doing so, by the end of that five-day period, the Lord had recalibrated my heart. And he gave me a sense of my own identity that I had never had. So I want to walk through bits and pieces of Psalm 139 with you this, today um, and show you a few things that I think the Lord showed me about how God creates us. Because there, there's two parts to identity, right? There is there is the piece of your identity that God has given you from birth, right? He has created you um, uniquely, right? And some of the ways in which he has uniquely created you form part of your identity. So that's 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 the first part of this. The other part of your identity, if you're a Christian, is who he has recreated you to be through Jesus. Okay, so we're going to get to that here in a little bit. But but the first, I, I want to, Psalm 139 is my go-to place now um, for, for understanding the first piece of identity. Okay, um, and so I want to walk with you through, through uh, Psalm 139. We're not going to look at every verse, but the, the big pieces that really became important to me in sorting this out. And I'm doing this knowing that this is an exceedingly poor substitute for doing this on your own with God and letting him speak to your own heart. Okay? So Psalm 139, excuse me, I need a drink. It's uh, it's afternoon. I'm recording this. It's not my morning. So I've, I've long since finished with coffee. So I got to have a drink of water here. In the afternoon, water is every bit as good as coffee. You should know that. Um, so uh, Psalm 139 starts off with these words. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So I read that, and I, I just kind of sat with that. And, and this is kind of the way I moved through this with God. I, I would read a passage pay attention to what kind of jumped out at me. And then I just sit with it for a little bit and, and just kind of try to understand it and, and ask the Lord to help me understand it. And as I, as I felt like that day that the Lord gave me some insight, I wrote it down. So here's what I wrote in my journal after, after reading those words. And, you, and you've got to understand, I, I very much saw this as a dialogue with God, not just my own reflections. It was it was me writing what I thought the Lord was speaking to me through the words that I read. So here's what I wrote. You know me better than I do, O oh Lord. You know everything about me. My hidden fears, my compensation mechanisms, my triggers, and my needs. 
you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, which is a, a part of Psalm 139, just a few verses down, verse 13. So when you tell me, Lord, that I can trust my instincts, that you gave them to me, I can believe you because you know more about me than I do. I, I, I can't tell you what was going on in my heart at the time and, and how, how life-giving that was. Well, I kept, I kept reading. Um, and, and like this didn't happen, just this little bit I just told you. This wasn't a, a two-minute thing. This was, this was 15, 20 minutes. I, you know, I was sitting with this and I wasn't trying to rush through this. Okay, but the next part, you search out my path. What does that mean? Um, you can track me. You come find me when I've wandered. Does it mean you're my point man, so to speak, picking out the way before me? Well, none of those things really rang true as I thought about them. So I just, I just sat with that phrase a bit longer. And after a few minutes, I wrote this. You know where I run to when I'm afraid or intimidated. And that seemed to carry a ring of truth to me. God knows who I am. He knows, he knows what I pay attention to. Um, he knows my, my weaknesses, my fears, my compensation mechanisms, my triggers, um, he knows where I run to when I'm afraid or intimidated. He knows how I'm, the track I run on in those circumstances. And like it was God saying to me, do you think any of this surprises me about you? I know how you, I know how you act. I know, I know how you're likely to respond to things. And it doesn't bother me the way it's bothering you. Well, that was, that was my quiet time for that day. So the next day, uh, the Lord and I picked up right where we left off. And I read these words. You discern my thoughts from afar. And I wrote, you understand the deepest needs of my heart. You showed me that yesterday. You can sort out all the complex webs of emotion and thought and reaction. You can get to the heart of my heart and so I wrote, Father, show me who I really am. Give me your perspective of me. You know me better than I do. Help me see what you see. You're acquainted with all my ways. And there's more, there's more to that phrase, I think, than just, you know, he sees you when you're sleeping. You know, the, the, the Christmas song we sing. And there's more here than the, the, you know, the idea of the, this all-seeing eye is on you day and night and he sees everything you do. You're acquainted with all my ways. And after a few minutes, I wrote this. You know why I do the things I do. Why I respond the way I do to fear, hurt, rejection, and intimidation. You know why I'm afraid when the phone rings and why I hate to be late. 
You know, know why I like to be alone and why I really need people. There is nothing about me that God doesn't already know. And you know, that's, that's comforting, right? You know, sometimes we, 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 we think that we, we live this kind of secret life and we can keep things hidden from God. He knows it all. There's nothing about us, about the way we act or what we do that surprises God at all. Well, then I wrote, read verses 7 through 12 in Psalm 139, which says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I guess I I had always, you know, this wasn't the first time I read Psalm 139. But I guess I had always looked at that passage kind of like the psalmist was wondering, gosh, where can I get away from this all-seeing eye? You know, where can I hide? Where can I just... You're watching me every move I make. Where can I get away from all that? You know, the idea that God sees everything you do or you you just can't hide from God. You know, we say, we've said that to people and given uh, um, an impression um, of God that, that he's just up there with a clipboard and a pen and just writing down everything you do. That's kind of the way I'd looked at that at that part of the of Psalm 139. But that day, as I sat with those verses before God, I saw it with fresh eyes. And here's what I think it's really saying. Father, you're with me everywhere I go. There's nowhere I can go, no, no distance too far that I can stray, that you're not, that you won't go with me. You will always be there. You search out my path. And I, and I know I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit, because, but I jumped around during all this. Like I, I read the psalm and then I jumped here and there back and forth through it. That's okay. But I found my way back up to verse 5. You, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And that seemed to be saying to me, you shield me. You'll protect me. You'll be the one to hold me and to comfort me. And then it, and then it hit me. That, that thought just really hit me. And, and so I wrote this. All of this is a description of a great father. You'll always be there for me. Your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. And verses 11 and 12. If I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not too dark for you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. In other words, if it looks to me like I'm all alone and about to be swept under, everything is still well within your control, Father. Everything is going to be okay. 
You see how closely linked your understanding of God and your understanding of yourself are? You just really can't understand who you are without understanding who the God who created you really is. Those things go hand in hand. Well, the next day, I pondered over verses 13 through 15, which says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So what's he talking about when he says, you formed my inward parts? What I wrote that day was this. My personality, my heart, my interests, my sensitivities, you made all of that. Well, then the, the synapses started really firing and I was putting stuff together I'd never put together before and a new idea started taking shape and I wrote this. So all of me, all of this is good. You knitted me together and those words said to me, Father, you, you chose the various strands and colors of yarn and types of yarn and you knitted them together just the way you wanted, intricately and with care and with love. I am a masterpiece built by a master craftsman. I am the way I am because that's the way you wanted me to be. And I do praise you. I am wonderfully made. And my soul knows it very well. And here I, here I wrote this. I know all this. And deep down, it, it came, the, the realization came to me that, by and large, I do like myself. I like the way I've been made. I like who I am. And I'm comfortable with myself, at least with who I was made to be. I've corrupted parts of myself, for sure. But the, the heart and soul are yours, O oh God. And there is a lot of good there. And the words of the psalm that day became my words. And my prayer that day was, Lord, help me to love myself as you do. And help me to care for myself as one cares for a precious treasure. I love you, Father. The next day I, I sat with verse 16, which says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And that said to me, I will be what you have called me to be. I don't know yet what that will look like, but my confidence is to rest not in what I know, but in what you know. And you have set my course. And I was, I was changing throughout all this. God was whispering into my heart 
and helping me to see me as he sees me. In my dialogue with God through Psalm 139, God showed me that I have value and worth and that he created me with love and intention to be precisely who I am. And that's a good thing. And he showed me that I shouldn't discount or diminish any of that. And the same is true for you. God lovingly knitted you together to be a reflection of his grace. And as such, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the truth is, we, we can corrupt and desecrate that which God has created. We do that to a degree when we choose to live in rebellion to God. But in becoming Christians, God recreates us and we become new again. And he turns us from slaves to sons and daughters. And that's borne out all the way through the New Testament. For instance, in Romans 8, uh, 14 through 17, Paul says that all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you, re you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, by the way, if you didn't know, it is a, it's an Aramaic word, and it is, a, it is a very affectionate term for father, okay? Um, I've, I've heard some people say it's kind of like daddy. Um, I, I don't know if that's quite it, because I, I, I think it, there's a little more, um, I don't know, maybe that's as good as it can get. Maybe I'm just, maybe I just don't like thinking of God as daddy, um, but it's a very affectionate term for father, okay? So we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, a, a, a pretty good question to ask at this point is, well, how do we know that we've been adopted? How do we know that we're sons? Well, Paul says, and there's a lot of places we could look at this, but Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, that in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when we give our lives to Christ and surrender to him in baptism, we become sons of God. And as sons and daughters of God, we become heirs. Just a few verses later in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, If you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's that same word again. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So as as a son of the king, you have all the rights and privileges of royalty. Paul says you're an heir. Heirs should live differently than slaves, don't you think? But they don't always. Sometimes heirs live like slaves, even though they're sons. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 11 through 24? Most of us, I think, are familiar with that story. But the part of the story that we sometimes ignore starts at the tail end of the prodigal son's story in verse 25, where we're told about the prodigal's older brother, you know, the one who who didn't leave home, who didn't squander all his father's wealth, the one who served his father and tended his lands and, and cared for his flocks and his herds faithfully for years, all while his younger brother was off living fast and loose. That part of the story. Well, in that part of the story, the younger brother has returned home and his father is overjoyed and orders this big celebration, pulls out all the stops because, as he says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost, he was lost, and is found. And right at the point in the story where everybody should be happy and rejoicing and full of, um, full of joy, we meet the older brother. And the story says that when the older brother finds out about the spread the father is laying out to celebrate the younger son's return, it says the older brother became angry and didn't want to go in. And then we find out why. Because the father comes out and pleads with him. Come on in. Celebrate. But the older brother says this to the father. Look, I have been slaving away for years for you. And I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Ouch. So how does the, the real question here is how does the, How does the older brother see himself? Well, it is crystal clear if you pay attention to verse 29 when he says, I have been slaving away for years for you. See, the older brother, the older son, doesn't see himself as a son. He sees himself as a slave. And because he sees himself as a slave, He sees everything in terms of who gets more and who gets less. Now, he is a son, but he's living like a slave. And the father has to remind him of who he is. The father says to him, verse 31, Son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. You're my son, Everything that's mine is also yours. So why are you so resentful? 
is what he seems to be saying. And he says, you don't understand that we, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, see, he doesn't say this son of mine. He says, this brother of yours, reminding him of the, of the connection that they have. They're both sons. He says, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Folks, if, if we don't see ourselves as sons, we can be the most bitter resentful Christians against people who fail. You've run into people like that. You've run into people who think that it's their job to uh, withhold love from the weaker brothers or sisters when they fail. And the reason they do that is because they still see themselves as slaves. They don't realize that everything of the fathers is theirs too. The only way we can extend the father's grace and love and hope to others is by first seeing ourselves as sons of a gracious, loving, hopeful father. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come this is, this is adoption language. You know, any, anytime you adopt a child, somewhere in the adoption agreement is, is, is language that basically says all other rights to this child by anyone else are forever terminated. That's what God is saying here. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Spiritual, spiritual adoption is being born again. There is a new biological connection being made to a loving father. And the child then begins to take on the family resemblance. So, so a couple of things, a couple of truths about this new identity as an adopted son or daughter of God. These are just absolutely, if, if you're an adopted son or daughter of, of Jesus, of God, here's some truths, Okay. Your identity, number one, is not defined any longer by your past. It is also not defined by either your mistakes or your wounds. Now, the wounds still hurt, but we are no longer defined by them. Your identity is also not defined by your strength or your successes. Your identity now as an adopted son of God, is defined by Christ. You are who he says you are. You are valuable to the extent that he values you. Not by all the things that we attach value to. And because that's so, we can affirm what Paul affirms in Romans 8, 31 through 39. He says, what, what are we to say about all this? Well, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. In other words, God won't be doing it. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we've been, we were been put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered, slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're new people. We're new creations. And our identity is not based on what we were. It's based on what we are. And if you're a Christian, you are a blessed, highly favored son or daughter of the king of creation. Whatever, Whether you feel like it or not, that is who you are. And it doesn't mean that life isn't still difficult at times. But it completely changes how you live and how you love and how you treat other people. All of that's true. If you could, if you could get up every morning and move through your day knowing, not hoping, but knowing that nothing is going to happen to you today that's going to change how the Father feels about you. It's going to change his love for you. That's going to change his assessment of your value. If you, could, if you could get up and move through every day knowing that, you think it would change your life? It absolutely changes your life. The only question about all this is will you believe it? And will you allow that belief to transform the way that you think of yourself, the way that you assess value to yourself? Will you trust God and let that transform the way you live? And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we would appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. Uh, if you enjoy if you enjoy the show, please uh, subscribe and rate and review us. But but more than that, tell somebody about it. Um, please visit our Facebook group for the Jesus Society podcast. Um, just search Jesus Society podcast and you'll find it. Feel free to suggest topics. Um, I've I've already heard from a few of you uh, about some topics I think we're going to do. Um, so I, we would love also to hear your story about how God's changing you. Also check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, by, by the way, check the resources for today's show notes. I'm going to have a couple of things in there. Um, I'll have a, a link to the PDF that I put in last week. Hopefully you got that. Um, and um, I'll put a link into Neil Cole's book as well. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.